understanding the doctrine of Christ and strengthening our testimony is a labor that will bring real joy and satisfaction. We need to consistently study the words of Christ as found in the scriptures and the words of living prophets. For behold, the words of Christ will tell you all things what you should do. Studying is then another essential key to become a better disciple of Jesus Christ. Prayer and scripture study go hand in hand. They work together for our benefit. This is the process that the Lord has established. To feast means more than to taste. To feast means to savor. We savor the scriptures by studying them in a spirit of delightful discovery and faithful obedience. When we feast upon the words of Christ, they are embedded in the fleshy tables of the heart. We've got Genesis chapters 24 through 33. Double lesson covers everything from what? Rebecca, Rachel, Jacob becoming Israel, Jacob and Esau. Um, a lot of a lot of interesting stuff here, but yeah, we kind of get into definitely some Old Testament scenarios. <laughs> the first thing, first question I had was in uh, Genesis chapter 24. <laughs> and um, in verse 2, And Abraham said unto his eldest servant of his house that ruled over all he had, Put, I pray thee, thy hand under my thigh, and I will make thee swear by the Lord. And I was like, what's that about? You know, like, why is he... Tell him to put his hand under his thigh. Like, what does that mean? And I found a, a quote by Olson in the book, uh, Women of the Old Testament. It says, the most generally accepted explanation for the custom is derived by considering the proximity of the thigh to the organ of procreation, reflecting that the oath was important as it pertained to Abraham's posterity and the continuation of the covenant. But the Joseph Smith translation changes thigh to hand, rendering the oath, I put, I pray thee, thy hand under my hand. In both references in Genesis 24. In this context, then, the description of making an oath by placing one's hand under another's hand may be suggesting the modern day equivalent of shaking hands to seal an agreement. That makes a lot more sense to me. <laughs> it's like, hey, come here, put your hand in mine, right? Before we get started with this oath, let's shake on it. That makes a lot more sense to me. But uh, that, that was kind of interesting. And then he, he asked him not to marry a Canaanite woman. And I've heard a lot of explanations, you know, about um, faith and about they were different races and not wanting to have uh, marriage happening between different races and stuff like that, especially at this time. And then I found a quote from Jackson in the book Restored Gospel in the book of Genesis. He says, the gospel teaches us to marry within our faith. Genesis emphasizes the importance of doing so by recording the efforts to obtain suitable wives for Isaac and Jacob. Like modern-day saints in a similar situation, Abraham wanted his son to marry a righteous woman who worshipped the true God. A polytheist Canaanite would not be acceptable. Thus, he sent his, ser his servant to Aram Naharain, the ancestral home Haran, and instructed him to find a wife there for Isaac. It is unlikely that the nationality or ethnicity of potential wives was at issue. So it had a lot more to do with the fact that they were not of the same faith, that they were not going to be of the same belief system than it had to do with them being of different ethnicities or different nationalities. And I think that's really important because, uh, yeah, in a household where, with, I grew up in a household that was 
bicultural. And it had its own complications because of that, because, you know, this is okay, this is not okay in certain families and whatnot. Um, and oftentimes we've been advised even by the brethren to, you know, marry within your own race, within your own culture. And I think that's more of just a, like a, a harmony type thing. You're not going to have to deal, marriage is already hard enough when you're adding in other aspects to that that make it even make it more complicated. Um, that's difficult to do. But I think what he's pointing out here is it's really about being of the same faith and having the same belief system, knowing what was at stake with the promises that they were given and saying, if you marry into this other faith, who knows where that could take you? <clears throat> I actually had more questions than comments <laughs> here because what I was thinking was, do you think God cares? Well, he wants us to marry and have families and raise children in righteousness because that continues to provide opportunity for spirit children and plan of salvation and and there are certain things we learn and certain covenants that we can only make as husband and wife right but you know the 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 journey that was gone to find i think it's rebecca for isaac so my question is there's definitely the lord wants us to marry someone righteous with the same goals as we do spiritually and so is there sometimes could sometimes the answer be it's better for you not to marry than to marry poorly well um, yeah that's that's a tough one because you know we often look at it as i remember hearing when i was a young adult uh the quote from brigham young saying you know a 25 year old that's unmarried is a menace to society and all that stuff i don't know i think it's a more menace to society to have forced something to have rushed into something just because you felt like it was what you had to do and then find yourself in a in a very bad situation and have to either live with that the rest of your life or have it fall apart um, that can cause more detriment to not only yourselves but those around you to potential children in the long run that's a very very impactful thing so is it better to just say, nope, I'm just going to go celibate because it's better than getting married to the wrong person? No, but also don't just rush into it just because you know you're supposed to get married, you know? Yeah, and another weird thought that I've had was I wonder if it's obvious that they needed to create heirs. Yeah. And if the wife wasn't able to, then there would be like a second wife and, you know, so forth. And I also wonder if if divorce was a thing back then or if you married for uh, like tribal unity or like for protection or for political reasons, you know, for, hey, I want to settle in this land, but I can't just take the land i have to marry someone or i'll take your daughter in marriage now we get the you know i i it seems that that could play a role they were more like tribal minded i mean there weren't like countries with borders and yeah. places you can go petition you know your land and 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 i know that it's kind of changed how marriage is done but for example in our day divorce is a lot more common and commonly talked about yeah. Where maybe in our parents' generation, like one generation ago, it was very frowned upon. Like, you have to make it work. If you have enough faith, you can make it work. And and it's like, well, sometimes someone else's agency is such that, or your own agency, or both of you, where it just doesn't work anymore. 
I mean, what I'm trying to say is I'm sure there's more complexity to these situations than what appears on the page. Yeah. But we do know that God values in the Book of Mormon, in Jacob, I believe Jacob chapter two, he values the chastity of women above everything else, you know. And he and Jacob calls down the Nephites for their immorality way over and even though they had the commandments and they had the truth, they were being more wicked because it said that the Lamanites still love their wives, you know? Yeah. So we can get a sense of like the Lord takes the relationships between husband and wife seriously. And we don't have all the details here, but in the next few lessons and, and as we continue down this lesson, we're going to see that it almost, in some scenarios, it almost becomes like a competition to see who can have the most sons or who can, who can, uh, you know, give birth, you know, and then once you have an heir, then you cast someone away or there's infighting. I don't know. It's very complicated. Um, and then you get into birthrights. I think what's really interesting about this is we're not that far separated, maybe a few generations away from Noah and the flood. And when you're thinking about what led to the demise of the people and this need to kind of restart things, was their falling away from from traditional and uh, teachings and from the prophets and from the gospel. And I think that the concern and a lot of these relationships that are happening in these chapters is that if we marry outside of our culture, outside of our belief system, um, we introduce the possibility that it could fall apart again. And so there's like a hyper protectionism of like, we need to make sure that whoever we're marrying, it's not a Canaanite, it's not a Moabite, you know, it's not these people that are possibly going to um, weaken the the things that we've been trying to build over the last few generations since Noah. And so it, it kind of, you know, that's what leads you to marry your first cousin, because it's like, we know what their belief system is. We went back to our ancestral homeland to find a wife. And just so happens that she's your first cousin. And a lot that, like you said, these things were a lot more common back then than they are now. There's not really a need to do that now because we have more people. But just kind of interesting to start thinking about how a lot of these decisions were made in order to strengthen their numbers, you know. And there's a, a lot of talk about uh, thousands of, of millions of posterity and stuff like that. Like it's all about who gets the birthright, how are we maintaining our belief system, and it's all about building up more and more posterity. And I think how much of this has to do with the fact that they are fully aware that the demise of their belief system led to the flood. Yeah, I, I kind of also liken it to the pioneer era, you know, yep. where the church was recently restored, very new. A lot of things were being learned as they went along. And then individuals were called to gather because they needed the strength of being together. And now we're at a phase where we are gathered everywhere around the world. And now it's it's a little bit different. And I like how when the Savior comes in his ministry, he makes a big point about the first will be last and the last will be first. And I always thought that was just something he liked to say. I never really thought much about it. But I kind of tend to think there are some prophecies on how the the Israelites 
or the God's people receive the gospel and they were going to take it, supposed to take it to the Gentiles. And, and the first would be last and last and first. And then the Gentiles actually are the ones that receive the gospel and they bring it back to, to the tribes and to the Jews in particular, right? And, and, I, and I look at that example and I kind of think some of the things that the Pharisees fell, some of the traps that they fell into was because of their lineage that they were good to go because they were children of Abraham, you know. And the Lord kind of tells them, you know, these these promises are very powerful and they're true, but they're dependent on your agency and what you do about it, not just a pre-stamped ticket to heaven, you know. And and so sometimes for us, we're looking at the beginning of the Abrahamic covenant and the people of Israel being called Israel and all of that. And it seems very like, hey, this is it. This is very important. But if we take this to our day, it kind of means the Lord is willing to make these promises with us individually. Regardless of our lineage, he adopts us as if we were Abraham. He treats us just as if we're Abraham and Sarah and makes covenants with us. And I think that's important to to link those two things together because it helps make a little bit more sense about why these things were happening, why it was so important to get this birthright, why why there was such a almost seems like scheming going on (laughs) yeah um when rebecca joins their family essentially uh they pay a dowry for her and stuff and it's interesting because there's also kind of like a an exchange that happens there but um there's a promise that she's told in verse 60 and they blessed rebecca and said unto her thou art our sister be thou the mother of thousands of millions, and let thy seed possess the gate of those which hate them. And uh, Bruce R. McConkie said, when Rebecca left her household, she was given a blessing. She was told, be thou mother of thousands of millions. That totals billions of people. This blessing came by this power of the Spirit and is speaking of the eternal increase that grows out of celestial marriage. And while we don't really think of ourselves as being the, the ancestors of thousands of millions, um, the point of it is when you have a celestial marriage and you maintain it and you keep it and you are true to the covenants you make, you open up doors for everyone coming after you to do the same. And they'll have the decision whether they'll do that or not, but you open the door for them to be able to do so. And so I think that's really an interesting uh, take on it is it's like this marriage isn't, while it is a covenant between the two of you and God, it affects everyone that comes after you, has the potential to bless everyone that comes after you too. And that to me is like, you you don't really realize in the moment, you might be only thinking about your significant other, right? But your kids, their children, they all have the opportunity to receive blessings because of the decision and decisions you continue to make in a celestial marriage. Um, We we have two people now that have issues. We have... uh, Sarah, who could not have a a child, the wife of Abraham, and then was blessed to be able to have children. And Rebecca also has uh, concerns about her pregnancy. And and, um, there's a a quote by Olson in the book, uh, Women of the Old Testament. It says, concerned over struggles she felt in her womb, Rebecca did not go to family or friends for help, but turned first to God to receive understanding and comfort. Furthermore, the biblical text is clear that Rebecca spoke directly to God 
and God responded directly to her without her prophet husband's intervention. She had already developed a close relationship with the Lord and the spiritual sensitivities necessary for clear communication. In response to her prayer, Rebecca learned prophetic truths. She would, be give, she would give birth to twin boys. Each son would be a leader of a nation, and the secondborn would lead the firstborn. In time, all three prophecies were fulfilled. And I just think about, you know, all of the uncertainties, all of the worries, the concerns, the, you know, has my baby been moving in a while? I don't know, you know, is everything okay? How is my health? And, you know, just as I've seen my, my wife go through two pregnancies now, and I see, you know, how every little thing is like, is, should I be worried about this? Um, and you, you, this is not, this is a, a just a fact of human life. You know, it's here's Rebecca, and she's going through some situation where she feels unsure about what's happening. So she prays, and she's. I think it's very important that it's pointed out here that she already had a relationship with God. Um, she had already maintained that to be able to receive revelation on her own, and um, I think that just shows the importance of when when you need it, uh, he'll he'll be there to answer us as long as we are accustomed to doing that and we know that he'll be there to answer and then the, the, the stuff that she gets the revelation she gets are incredibly important and really play out for the rest of her life and her son's life mm -hmm. because a lot of the decisions that she makes and that they make are based on this revelation she gets at that point during her pregnancy especially the the issues with the birthright in these two twins jacob and esau yeah, that that's an interesting story there the the Part for me that was interesting as I listened to the lesson and it explained how it explained the importance of the birthright and being the oldest and that typically the inheritance was divvied out but then an, an additional portion was given to the first uh, born and that with that came responsibility like of leadership and, and um, kind of leading the family and taking care of things and, and it kind of speaks to the the fact that Esau was the oldest, but he kind of did not want that responsibility and traded it for a pot of pottage or some sort of food that doesn't sound very appetizing. It's like a picture, like a lentil stew, like a stew. Yeah. <laughs> and it also sounds like Isaac really liked Esau because Esau was a hunter and made some sort of delicious meat and Isaac really enjoyed it. And so he might have been a little bit more partial to Esau, where Jacob was kind of a herdsman, kind of very reminiscent of Abel and Cain, right? Yeah. <laughs> and then one day Esau was super hungry and, and he came to Jacob and he said, hey, give me some of that porridge. And he said, I will if you give me the birthright. And it seems like there's definitely has to be more here. For example, it, it really seems like Esau did not want the responsibilities associated with that role. And so for him to trade it for a pot of porridge was nothing, like it didn't mean much. And in the lesson, it, it ties that to immediate gratification and being able to understand that, that sometimes here on earth, we have to watch out for things that seem very interesting right now, but won't help us in the future or we'll be giving up our birthright or giving up the promise and that that was given to us about esau like he was a 
like you said, he was a, a hunter. He was kind of more. There's a, a, a quote by by Black in the book, 400 Questions and Answers about the Old Testament. Esau, whose name means Harry, was firstborn twin and favorite of Isaac. Esau's robust frame and rough aspect were the types of a wild and daring nature. The, the peculiarities of his character soon began to develop. Being a son of the desert, he delighted to roam free and was impatient of the restraints of civilized or settled life. You know, he's a guy who kind of just wants to do his own thing. And then uh, there's a in the Old Testament uh, student manual, it says this uh, rationalization seems to reflect more scorn than hunger. He's talking about um, they're talking about the the giving up the birthright for pottage, right? Reflect more scorn than hunger. Jacob would almost certainly have suckered Esau freely if his life were in jeopardy. The point of this account seems to be primarily to show how little value Esau placed on the birthright. His immediate bodily needs were more important to him than the rights of the covenant. Additional evidence of this attitude is Esau's marriages to Canaanite women, which broke the covenant line. The birthright itself should have been in a, a treasured thing. So yeah, it's kind of pointing out just a, a pattern in Esau that he was more interested in doing his own thing, not particularly interested in a civilized or settled life, and that he didn't really value the birthright that much. And so when it was offered to him, yeah, I'll make you this if you give me your birthright. He was like, sure, whatever. You know, it wasn't so much like I'm starving and I need food to stay alive. And OK, I'm in a position of power now. I'll feed you if you give me your birthright. It was more just like he didn't really have interest in it. And then, you know, later on, he marries Canaanite women, which also shows, like we were mentioning earlier, you're not marrying within the the belief system and within the the group. And so you're you're not willing to make the lifestyle choices to continue on forward. And like you were saying, I think it shows a little bit of short-sightedness because later he's not too happy about it. He starts to realize what it actually means. And I think he's started down this road without realizing what implications there might be in the future. And I think we do that a lot of times too. We're like, oh, I don't wanna have to commit to this or that, or I'd, I'd rather just do my own thing. And then we realize later on, gosh, I missed out on some opportunities there because I didn't do what I, I really ultimately knew was right. This part in Josephus, um, when he talks about this section, he says, um, now when Esau, one of the sons of Isaac, who was whom the father principally loved, was now come of age at 40 years. So apparently 40 years was coming of age, which is pretty old. Um, he says, therefore, taking upon himself the authority and pretending to have dominion over his own marriages without so much as asking for advice of his father, for had Isaac been the arbitrator, he had not given him leave to marry thus, for he was not pleased with the contracting any alliance with the people of that country, but not caring to be uneasy to his son by commanding him to put away these wives, he resolved to be silent. And then it says, but when he was old, he could not see, he called Esau to him and then goes over that because of his blindness and disorder, his eyes, his very old age hindered him from worship of the God by sacrifice. He bid him therefore to go hunting. So typically it sounds like Isaac would go and get his own sacrifice, but instead he sent his son to go get it for him. But it's interesting that it kind of implies that some of these marriages were alliances mm -hmm. and that uh, it it was not, it, it was a big deal, you know, kind of um, uh, not, not just not marrying in the covenant, but it seemed like he was making arrangements that his father didn't want him to. 
there's this there's this quote about Isaac that I thought was interesting because we know that Isaac's a pretty important guy, um, but he kind of we, we look at Abraham as Father Abraham, you know, and how he had this covenant that's tied to his name, and then Isaac comes after. He's not quite to that level, um, but there's a there's a quote by Tuttle in the book Alter Tent Well. And then he says, Isaac did not become an Abraham or a Jacob. He did not reach the heights of Abraham called the father of the faithful, nor was he impressive as, a, as his son Israel, father of the 12 tribes. Yet Isaac is loved and revered. He's, he worshiped God, cared for his home, and pursued his work. He is remembered simply as a man of peace. The eloquent simplicity of his life and his unique ability to lend importance to the commonplace made him great. Altar, tent, and well, his worship, his home, his work. These basic things of life signified his relationship to God, his family, and his fellow men. I, I think I can identify with a person like that more than I can identify with all these other people, you know, because I feel like that's kind of how I would like to be revered someday as well. Someone who cared about his worship, his home, and his work. Someone who did right by all three of those aspects of life so that, yeah, that's respectable. And, you know, when it says uh, the eloquent simplicity of his life and his unique ability to lend importance to the commonplace made him great. He didn't have a huge covenant made directly to him. He did not have his name changed and become something else. But he just did everything as well as he possibly could. And sometimes that's all we're asked to do. Most of the time, I would say that's all we're asked to do. Just do your best in every aspect of your life. Isaac passes away, right? And yes. at some point, there's a falling out between Jacob and Esau. Tell us about that, Daniel. <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> it's over the over the birthright. Basically, Esau's like, hey, man, I, I feel like I, I maybe should have gotten that after all. And I don't really like the fact that I didn't. <laughs> it's funny how the porridge was the thing you wanted at the time. Yeah. But maybe when he came down to it, realizing all the wealth his fa father had. Uh, but the, the interesting thing is, like, because it, it almost seems like, oh, they tricked Isaac to get the birthright. That Rebecca played a huge role in helping to circumvent the, the eldest son and whatever. But really, she was told in the revelation while she was still pregnant that her second born would be the leader. And so she was trying to make sure that that ended up happening. And the thing that we learned about Jacob going forward is that he had lived a life worthy to receive the promised blessings of the birthright. It wasn't like he was just trying to take advantage of a blind dad, you know, and a hairy brother. <laughs> he he was living the right kind of lifestyle and he was living in according to the commandments uh, to deserve the birthright. And Esau really kind of wasn't. He was, He wasn't really doing what he was supposed to be doing. And so it wasn't really just, oh, I got this promise. Now I got to make sure it happens. And I got to trick Isaac into making him give up the birthright to the wrong person. It was really, we got to make sure that the right person is getting this. And so that, you know, I always saw it as, huh, wow, that's kind of weird that they tricked their own dad, you know, and husband. But really what it is, is Isaac could have at any point taken back the blessing and given it to Esau. After he realized what had happened, he could have done that, but he didn't. Because I think what he realized was, oh, yeah, I, uh, Jacob is more in line with what the blessing would require. 
I view it as one of those moments where you think something you should be doing, but you're kind of blinded by it. Yeah. And then your wife says, maybe you should do this, and you don't listen, and then it comes full circle, and you realize she was right, you know? And it reminds me of on the movie Big Fat Greek Wedding, when the mom is like, the father is the head of the household, but the mother is the neck, right? <laughs> Where it's like, yeah, he's the one who makes the decisions, but I make him turn which way I need him to turn. <laughs> so they have a falling out, and then they're going to meet again. It says 20 years later. And then Esau threatens to kill Jacob. Jacob spends all night wrestling in the wilderness, which kind of means intense prayer, probably, seeking the Lord. And that's when the Lord talks to him and tells him that, hey, I'm going to renew the Abrahamic covenant with you. I'm going to be with you. And he gets a new name of Israel, which means he per perseveres with God. But also with President Nelson, it also means let God prevail. So I wonder, I don't know, that that's pretty interesting because if I use let God prevail and he's about to meet his brother in the morning, and most likely there might be a fight breaking out and you have all these fears and concerns, let God prevail makes it sound to me like you've done everything you can, leave it in the Lord's hands, you know. And then we'll see that, you know, or like you will be preserved or, or persevere with God. As long as you're doing what's right, he'll help you. Yeah. And I find that really interesting because that is no different than what God promises us. I mean, the story of the Book of Mormon is a story of people continuously in war and in bondage, you know, and continuously being delivered, which is the same lesson of Israel, like in all their battles and fights and things. And then that, the other thing that I thought was interesting is these guys were warriors of some sort. You know, Abraham was a warrior. He led an army to go, you know, get Lot back when he got kidnapped, you know. Um, there was no, like, call the sheriff and have this sorted out. And sometimes some of these families dispute led into just, like, some sort of battle, you know. And um, that's a very different way that our society functions, you know. Family disputes now leave into like passive-aggressive Facebook comments <laughs> and uh, being underhanded at family gatherings type of thing or, or speaking behind each other's lives. In this situation, it could have been like life or death type of scenario. Yeah. And so sometimes we we look at some of the way they did certain things, like the way they married and their kids and how many kids they had and why they wanted to have more kids. It might also be so they have more protection, more army, more <laughs> more ability to be secure, you know? Yeah, I, I think it's interesting that he, when he's coming to meet Esau again, I mean, like you said, it's been 20 years-ish. Lots changed in that amount of time. I mean, he went out to go find a wife also, and Jacob found Rachel, who he fell in love with, and went and talked to her father and was like, hey, I want to marry Rachel. And he's like, yeah, sure, work for me for seven years. And then instead gave his daughter Leah to him and was kind of like, um, that's not who I wanted, but okay. <laughs> you know. <laughs> and then he stayed and worked for another seven years until he could get Rachel. And it's interesting because he's he's building a life for himself. He's showing his dedication not only to his wife, but to what the Lord wants him to do and continuing to to learn how to serve. And when he goes to meet up with his brother, he brings him a bunch of uh, gifts, like 
a bunch of animals and stuff and he bows to him seven times which is a symbol of you know respect to his authority as an older brother he has his servants make sure that they talk to him talk about him as his older brother and all this so he's like yeah i've got your birthright and i'm really afraid that as soon as you see me you're going to want to kill me but all of these other things that have been happening all this time I think he's been preparing for that moment of coming back. And the changing of his name, I think, had a lot to do with this as well. Um, The idea of let God prevail. In the Latter-day Saint commentary on the Old Testament, it says, This messenger from God, this is when he gets his name changed. This messenger from God had authority to change Jacob's name to Israel, meaning one who prevails with God or let God prevail. Ellis Rasmussen suggested the new name seems to symbolize the end of his past ways and contrast them with the way he could succeed as true patriarch by letting God prevail in guiding his emerging mission. So he's basically being told by this name change, like, yeah, you were a good guy, Jacob, but now you're going to be the true patriarch. And I think by by letting God prevail, it's also telling him when you go meet with your brother and everything you do, let God take care of it. Do what you need to do to let God take care of it. You're different now. You're new. You're starting something new. And I thought about that as in the terms of what President Nelson brought up in April 2021 conference when he started talking about let God prevail. And maybe that was kind of a way of saying, hey, you know, we're refocusing on the name of the church being the Church of Jesus Christ. We're doing certain things that are new. It's kind of like a new start in some ways. Let God prevail in all of this. But there will be challenges along the way. We will have a pandemic. We will have war. We will have all these other things that come in the way, but we need to let God prevail and trust and have faith that he will make the best things be the outcome. As long as we're doing our part, he'll make the best things happen. There are a couple of quotes here I found about that interaction between Jacob and Esau as well, and it's about forgiveness. Um, Neil A. Maxwell said, the passage of time is not by itself an automatic cure for bad choices, but often individuals like the prodigal son can in process of time come to their senses. The touching reunion of Jacob and Esau in the desert so many years after their youthful rivalry is a classic example of how generosity can replace animosity when truth is mixed with time. When we are unduly impatient, we are in effect trying to hasten an outcome when this kind of acceleration would be to abuse agency. That was really good. And then the other quote I I found was, Um, by Gilliland in the book Forgiveness. He said, talking about in uh, verse 14 of chapter 33, it says, let my Lord, I pray thee, pass over before his servant, and I will lead on softly, according as the cattle that goeth before me and the children be able to endure until I come unto my my Lord unto Savior. So he says, to lead on softly is to move slowly, gently, easily, step by step. Jacob's decision may also have indicated his desire to reinstill trust in his relationship with Esau. Forgiveness and trust are not synonymous. We are required to forgive everyone, but counseled to be cautious in placing our trust in others. Trust places a responsibility in people that they may not be ready to handle. Trust must be earned. That one was interesting. Trust gives a responsibility to people that they may not be ready to handle. And I think that in the process of forgiveness, like to forgive someone is to say, okay, I'm going to have good faith that we can get back to trust someday. But to immediately trust them and have them not be ready for that and then have them betray that trust again, it only exacerbates the problem. When you can say, you know what, I forgive you. I believe we can get back there, but you're going to have to earn it. And then over time, 
having them have the opportunity to earn that trust back leaves less of an opportunity for disappointment and for failure in that full on forgiveness. So Jacob has a dream <laughs> in the in the book. It says it's OK, so Jacob dream of a ladder stretching from earth to heaven with God standing above it in the dream. God renews with Jacob the same covenants that he had made with Abraham and Isaac. So Abraham and Isaac. And then there's a quote here by President Miriam G. Romney, who says, um, it says that Miriam G. Romney shared this thought about what the latter could represent. It says, Jacob realized that the covenants that he made with the Lord, there were the runs of the ladder that he himself would have to climb in order to obtain the promised blessings, blessings that would entitle him to enter heaven and associate with the Lord. Temples are to us all what Bethel was to Jacob. So one one thing I really like about this is one that we always talk about the Abrahamic covenant, but it could easily be called the Isaac covenant and the Jacob covenant and the your covenant, you know, whomever, right? Um, I think they're the prime examples because Abraham, like we've talked in the past, he was in a very bad situation, surrounded with all sorts of wickedness. But his desire to to gain knowledge, to be obedient, to to find a better way, to look around and say, it cannot be like this, led him to be susceptible to the Lord being able to change his life drastically, you know? And that change blesses countless generations. And I would say that maybe the inverse can be correct, where our negligence can also, well, I wouldn't say curse, but make it harder for generations after us right. to find the Lord. So I think it, it works both ways. And that's why it's so important that these covenants are things that we think about and that like Miriam G. Romney says that the covenants are there, but we are the ones that have to climb the rungs on the ladder. It's not just enough to make them. And when we go to the temple, it's very evident what is told to us. You know, we make these covenants, but we also need to live them and and um just like anything else it's there there's great mercy i think there's great mercy in the lord allowing for us to make mistakes and improve and his timing is great in teaching us and some of that mercy also means that although we feel inadequate and like we could never be such great persons as these examples that we read in the scriptures of righteousness, or even as our Savior, whom we try to emulate, that that seems so distant distant to us. But He says, "I have a plan. You just need to climb one rung at a time." You know, and and I think that's something that we should keep in mind because sometimes we distance ourselves from these like the Abrahamic covenant or this temple or the new and everlasting covenant, you know, these things that they sound so grand and great and they are, but they weren't intended for someone else. They were intended for you and me and for everyone. So I, I thought that was interesting. There's also like a connection to understanding, understanding that if we, if we trust and we follow the commandments that we can reach the highest rung of that ladder and that it's promised to all of us. It's a it's a possibility for everyone. No one is being you know pre uh, given preference over another. 
in that sense. And I think that that's also an interesting and important distinction to make that he's talking about, you know, this ladder that reaches up to heaven. Well, we're all on that ladder somewhere and we all can reach the top of it if we do our best, you know, to just keep keep climbing up. Don't ever go back down. The last one, I'll just touch on this briefly, was the section in the lesson uh, where it says the Savior can help us overcome discord in our families. Hmm. And then it it asks us to consider the following examples of Jacob and Esau and what stands out from his prayer and how do we learn about forgiveness. And you touched on that about forgiveness and trust. And um, and then, but to the end, there's a question that says, how can the Savior help us heal family relationships? And I I would like to say that our families, all families, are different, unique, all made up from their backgrounds, their upbringings, their own points of view. No family is perfect. And I would say the family, your immediate family, requires your best effort. And then all other relationships go out from there. Now, when the family is broken or not useful or abusive or whatever it may be, Sometimes individuals don't even get the opportunity to try to do forgiveness because things are just so out of whack that it doesn't work, right? Um, I know that the Lord and in the scriptures and in lessons, we talk about ideal situations, what to, to drive for the ideal. But I would say that in a world we live in, more and more families are broken and they're broken from within. They're broken through different choices people make and, and sometimes choices that are out of our control. And I, I would just say that the Lord, that just as Abraham, it seemed like a miracle that they would have a child. And uh, Jacob and Esau, it might also seem like a miracle that they would find forgiveness and, and unity again, right? And many other examples. I would just say that this what when I think of Israel, I think of the story of um, that that the Lord is his promises are sure, and, and that sometimes in our lives our families aren't you know it might not even be the time to consider unity. It might you might have people that want nothing to do with you, you know, or or, or things like that. The the Lord like if we cling to Him there will be no disadvantage at the end when all is said and done. Like things, you know, and some of us may not be able to have kids, may not find, you know, our Jacob or our Rebecca or our, you know, whomever, right? We may not find someone worthy to marry or have married somebody who is worthy and no longer is, or we ourselves are that, whatever it may be, right? I guess what I'm trying to say is if we first seek the Lord, he will help us in our individual situation to find happiness again, you know? And the family in the world we live in, a lot of issues revolve around experiences that people have in their family growing up, experiences that they had or didn't have. And the Lord is not unaware of these things. If you we look at almost all the scriptures, they're all family stories of things that took a left turn that should have gone right and people went left, right? So I would, just my advice is 
you know, sometimes when we try to liken some of these scriptures, we can find ourselves outside of the examples. Right. But that doesn't mean that the principles in the Lord is not able to help us and in, in make our own, in our, our own experiences, you know. Here's a here's a philosophical question. Is it possible to forgive someone without them knowing? I think so. Because I think a lot of times if you're having a, a really big issue with someone and you come to the realization that you need to humble yourself and forgive, you may not either be able to access that person, communicate that with them, or they may just not want anything to do with you. They may not be ready for to hear from you yet. But in your heart, you can forgive them. And you can say, I don't want this to be a contentious thing anymore. If, if there's contention, it won't come from me. Yeah. You know what I mean? And then if that person ever does come around to say, all right, I'm ready to hear you, then you can you know, share that with them. But, um, you know, I'm just thinking about some of the, the opportunities where people are like, I, I had a, a big fight with that person and then I never saw them again or something that that can seem very much like it's it lacks closure. But I think sometimes it's it's very possible to forgive someone. On your side and, and, and just be like, you know, I recognize where I went wrong or if they if they're the sole offender, you can be like, I, I just don't want to live with this. This contention in my heart anymore. I want it to be gone. I want to forgive. Yeah, I, I, I think forgiveness is not dependent on the person accepting it. Right. You know, they may still not forgive or not be sorrowful or not be repentant or not even admit that they did anything wrong. And I think also it becomes harder because we we need to also forgive ourselves. Sometimes we resent ourselves for having fallen for that trap or 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 trusted that person. Or now you look back and you see all the warning signs or, or whatever, and you're like, how can I be so stupid? You know that. And it's like, I always think about um, Mother Teresa, where she says, you know, do this and they'll despise you, do it anyway, you know, love someone and they they might not think it's genuine, love them anyway, you know, do service and nobody will notice and it might not change the world, serve anyway, you know, you know, her, her quote. And, and I think sometimes it's, you can forgive them, they may never change, forgive them anyway. You know, um, it's more about not holding yourself back and being able to move on, it, which is very different, like you said, than trust. Trust yeah. is is a trust is earned. Become an engaged learner. Immerse yourself in the scriptures to understand better Christ's mission and ministry. Know the doctrine of Christ so that you understand its power for your life. Internalize the truth that the atonement of Jesus Christ applies to you. Every time you plug in your phone, use it as a reminder to ask yourself if you have plugged into the most important source of spiritual power, prayer and scripture study, which will charge you with inspiration through the Holy Ghost. It will help you know the mind and will of the Lord to make the small but important daily choices that determine your direction. My dear brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ invites us to take the covenant path 
back home to our heavenly parents and be with those we love. He invites us to come follow me. Thank you.